You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, good morning, and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. My name is Hamad Khan, and you're listening live to Weekend World on today, Sunday, the 22nd of January, 2023. On Weekend World, we look behind the week's news and uh, get into some of the details and look at it from an Islamic perspective. I'm extremely lucky to be joined uh, today uh, by Dr. Abdul Alim, a long-time contributor to this program. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Alim. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Alim, um, lots going on in the world, <laughs> much, to, much to discuss, um, but, a, but a theme that we keep coming back to on this program and in our in our discussions which i i think is very important for us to to cover in in a little bit of detail and the question of the disparity the 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 gap between developed nations and and less developed nations let's say developed nations um uh, i mean you can you could make the argument that all countries are in on a sort of a, a process of becoming more developed as as time goes on no no country can claim to be fully developed but nonetheless there is a, there's a there's a gap isn't there between countries that are that are more developed and and countries that are less developed and people sometimes use the the terms low and middle income countries um framing it entirely in a in a financial sense around the um monetary value that that countries um create um, and perhaps the gross domestic product, the amount of money that is generated per head of population by a particular country. And of course, these things have an impact because it impacts the, the facilities that are available to people within their country, um, how good their infrastructure is, how good their, their housing, electricity, um, availability of, of food, clean water, etc., etc., all of these things, they make, a, they make a difference to people's quality of life. But but these measures um, in in and of themselves don't directly necessarily measure quality of life, or um, or human development. And um, and there are other commentators and and a, and perhaps a, a move towards uh, look looking at this more in terms of human development. And and there are measures such as human development in, index used to used to look at this. And and. I think it would be really useful for our for our listeners for us to to have a conversation about um, the the systems that that the international systems that unfortunately perhaps uh, perhaps some of them are, have been created with with a, a good intent in the first instance, but uh, unfortunately um, have a tendency to work towards continuing the oppression of um, low and middle income countries and in fact draining resources away from them uh, rather than uh, supporting them in the longer term to be able to become to move out of the position of being low and and middle income countries and and very specifically we're talking about uh, systems in place which are there to support uh, what's called international development Um, and uh, the the thing that I, I think will be useful for us to talk about is the the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Um, and I wonder, I mean, I guess a starting point would be that some people perhaps aren't familiar with what the what the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund 
are and what they do. I mean, it, it sounds like they they perhaps they just give money to countries and that's it. They they are they're there. They're able to. They they've got lots of money. They'll give money to a country that doesn't have any money, and that that money can be used to um, to develop things in in that country. Is is it as simple as that? I think it's a bit more nuanced than that, um, but certainly I think um, that's what uh, you know. In terms of in layman terms, that's what we understand. Uh, as we have already spoken about this, uh, most of the institutions that we are talking about, including the what we call the global governance institutions, were formed uh, in 1940s, uh, post the Second World War, uh, and these are what they call the Bretton Woods institutions that came about due to a consensus in uh, with several countries in the world together in deciding and coming together to say that after the Second World War, there is a likelihood that many countries will have problems with their resources and uh, that they will actually need help in terms of uh, building their economy. Uh, one of those countries, of course, was Germany itself, which had been completely destroyed in the Second World War, uh, and Japan. Uh, which actually got the first uh, biggest loans from the U.S. It's called the German Marshall Plan that was implemented to bring back Germany uh, back into a modern economy. Mm. Uh, but uh, the bank and the International Monetary Fund and the United Nations um, and several other U.N. institutions were formed essentially on the principle that they will actually assist both technically and financially and economically uh, the world uh, that had been decimated in one sense before the Second World War and, of course, with the Second World War, because you know that many of the developing countries actually were recruited to help allies in the Second World War against Germany. So we already know that India lost uh, a couple of million people helping uh, the Britain in terms of uh, the British troops in terms of the Second World War, uh, which is which forms present Pakistan and India. And several other nations uh, were recruited also mm. to help that. So essentially, there was a, as the colonial powers withdrew from uh, these, uh, these countries in the post the Second World War, it was realized that there is a need to actually stabilize the economies of these, these countries. And so some of these institutions were formed to make sure that um, the new global economic order that was going to be put in place and had already been sort of designed is going to be, uh, you know, essentially implemented through these institutions. So, yes, part of that uh, institution help was to actually provide aid, low-cost, uh, low-interest um, loans, um, help countries restructure their debts if they have borrowed money, uh, and also to provide uh, technical assistance in terms of governance, in terms of reform of health and education and agricultural sectors. So yes, there's a huge gamut of uh, work that was uh, given to these institutions in the, in the aftermath of the Second World War. And so that's a, um, a very good summary. And I think one one thing which which struck me immediately as you were as you were going through that sort of potted history of what happened after the Second World War was that, um, as you said, countries like India and and other countries perhaps. Countries subject to to empire, uh, we could we could summarise as as that because there were there were many countries within sub-Saharan Africa who, um, from from where troops were sent out to to fight in the Second World War, far far away from their from their home countries, 
Um, but as well as individuals, there was also a, a huge financial burden put on those countries. And uh, and India as a as a nation was um, was subject to, to huge amounts of tax taxation and huge resources were were spent from from India to help to to fight the Second World War. So there was a there was perhaps a double a double burden put on those on those countries. So it wasn't just countries such as um, Germany and and Japan as you as you mentioned on the losing side. Perhaps many of those other countries subject to empire who also as a result of the Second World War were were in this position where they um they were financially drained as well as drained of drained of um individuals who could otherwise have worked in various industries so so a huge and massive legacy and perhaps the culmination of the of the legacy of empire it's an interesting um it's a it's an interesting point in history in terms of the um the the effects that that occurred and the and the legacy uh, that it left and I, and I think we can't forget that Britain was also financially decimated as well at the end of the second world war um but but managed to emerge um as stronger than ever within within a very short period of time and and perhaps that's an interesting point for us to to um a frame through which to look at this why was it that there were some countries and we can see clearly Britain, Germany, and Japan, as you've pointed towards, who managed to emerge from uh, the post-Second World War period hugely successful financially um, and able to, to come back stronger uh, than they had been. They, they, these were all um, countries who had had massive um, financial um, interests prior to the Second World War um, or at the end of the 19th century. Um, and w- but why was it that countries like that were able to get back so strongly uh, on their own two feet, but other countries, perhaps poorer countries, it took much longer? Countries uh, such as um, China and, and, and India. Uh, and for the vast majority of other countries, perhaps they're still in a position where they are they're struggling. Um, what, why do you think that difference is there? Well, let's... Uh, um Unfed this a bit. Um, I must say that um, given what uh, we just, you know, recently um, Oxfam came back, came up with a very, very interesting report, uh, which has been circulated to the World Economic Forum. Um, and, you know, now I think that we need to distinguish between uh, nation states or state nations versus the global economic system, mm. uh, which is increasingly um, getting delinked from even the welfare of common people in what we call the developed world. So, as you are, you must be aware, um, there is a huge amount of problem now in the UK with uh, long lines on food banks. Mm. Um, we know that most quarter of children in the UK are now considered multidimensionally poor, mm. um, and there is, of course, the NHS that uh, you are fully aware of in terms of uh, shortage of funding and crisis in the human resources in NHS. So, in fact, actually, I believe now that in many uh, what we call the so-called developer, there are pockets of um, developing country sort of trends emerging. So, we now say that there are there are parts of uh, Europe and parts of North America which are actually as poor, perhaps even worse in some cases than parts of, uh, for instance, in Singapore and India, 
so there is a bit of a developed developed world in the developing countries and there is some parts of the developing countries in the developed world mm. uh in the sense that it seems that um the um affliction that comes from the current model of economic world economic order actually is not even sparing what we call the industrialized and post industrial economies mm. um so uh, so we need to unthread this in the sense that the model of what we call development based on gdp growth is certainly outdated because it doesn't really capture what is happening even in terms of the microcosms of of communities across even developed world and certainly a majority of population in the developing world is uh, is affected because of that and so i think that part of that uh, answer comes from the fact that if we are able to um unthread uh, economic ideology from the actual uh, living experience of many of these countries then we are able to make sense of what is really going on and have uh, have even the developed countries become victims of their own success in the sense of um you know uh, the economic model that we pursued since 1980s when dollar was defaced from gold uh, has has led to increasing financialization and uh, Uh, you know uh, lack of um, lack of capital uh, deployment in productive sectors uh, so i think that uh, you know in one sense the oxfam reports captures some of these really uh, grim statistics uh, let me mm. just give you a couple of them one is that the 10 uh, the wealth of the 10 richest men has doubled with the income of 99% of humanity are uh, worse off uh inequality contributes to death of at least one person every 4 seconds hmm. 252 million uh, 252 men have more wealth than 1 billion women and girls in africa and latin america um now uh, 3.4 million black americans would be alive today if their life expectancy was the same as white people so we're talking about really now uh, billions of people hmm. every 26 hours there's a new billionaire being created since the pandemic um and 17 million people have died uh, because of covid and still rising mm. uh, and every day inequality contributes to the death of at least 21000 people per day actually so i think that we are in a very very different situation where yes the history of the colonial extraction was partly responsible for what was, what happened to part of the world and still goes on Uh, but i think that we are increasingly looking at even the countries that instituted those uh, economic institutions and the global governance mechanisms becoming victims of their own um, uh, system that they they have created mm. and i think that's a real cause of concern because as you know um, there has been there was a lot of effort on part of what we talked about in terms of the international financial institutions and the global governance institutions to help developing countries but we know that the economic model that was put in place and it is not necessarily in intent or deliberate attempt on part of the institutions like the bank the imf to actually create that kind of inequality but actually the overall global economic system how it shaped essentially is now being managed by a, a very small group of people uh, who whose uh, benefits actually uh, outweigh the interest of uh, the the global wealth or, or the global welfare and i think that uh, many of the people who are working in the institutions actually feel even helpless 
because um, the power of status quo are so strong and there is mm. such a big um, collusion between the politicians and the rich oligarchs and the people who are at the helm of these international institutions that it is very difficult to figure out who is going wrong where mm. and how we can actually address this. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. We are now talking about a serious crisis emerging in Pakistan. Uh, we already know that Sri Lanka defaulted and Ghana has defaulted. And we know that in Ghana and uh, Sri Lanka, the real problem was not uh, the uh, IMF and the World Bank institutions, but real problem was the global private sector creditors. So, for instance, Ghana's default is essentially uh, due to the private eurobond holders. Mm. And similarly, uh, Sri Lanka's default was also because of the private bond holders. So, and these private bondholders are not subject to any influence by either the international financing institutions or governments. They are they they have their power on their own, and are and no governments are able to negotiate with them for, you know, the uh, the delay or the um, or the ability to renegotiate interest rates or not being able to pay them. And once that is non-negotiable, countries default because. Obviously, um, their economies are not doing well. And mm. of course, we have talked about the fact that several of these governments are also responsible for this. But certainly, I think there is a very powerful emerging force in the international economic system that is not under control and has actually been sort of um, unleashed because of the deregulation and interests of a few, uh, where uh, even they are not subject to any influence from what we now call the global governance institutions. So the situation is, is really complicated. Uh, now, um, in Pakistan, we know that Pakistan's situation right now is that the reserves have, uh, in fact, come down to almost $4.5 billion. Um, and that is not enough to even import one or two months of um, oil or, uh, or edible oil hmm. or uh, essential supply, which means that Pakistan may actually go the Sri Lanka way and you might actually have large-scale civil strike in Pakistan if things don't uh, really get addressed. But the problem is that right now, nobody is willing to bail out Pakistan from its current conditions, and the country is going to Sri Lanka way. So these three countries show you the fact that uh, the international economic system now is, in fact, in one sense, a system that is out of control. Mm. Um, and it, we don't know whether this was really fully designed to be this way or whether this was a collusion or this was a conspiracy. But the fact is that uh, a common man in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, or Ghana is going to hugely suffer because of this uh, situation where uh, probably mass starvation or mass uh, strife will actually afflict these countries very soon. And this is not just these three countries. You're talking about 40 to 60 countries that are likely to default on their debt in 2023. And these are IMF estimates. Um, obviously, the policies of IMF and World Bank also somehow sometimes uh, exaggerate the effects uh, of uh, this, uh, you know, the austerity or the lack of revenues or problems in these countries. But certainly they are not only the only uh, institutions that are uh, at, uh, at, uh, to be questioned here. This is all both fascinating and disturbing in, in equal measure, uh, Dr. Aleem. And one thing that you pointed towards, which I I think was really fascinating, was the analogy um, brought about by huge wealth disparity, wealth inequality, the, 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 the analogy between individuals within 
um, industrialized countries, richer countries, those individuals who are very poor um, and who actually uh, really struggle to be able to feed themselves, heat their homes, um, get a good education, etc. And those poorer countries, low and middle income countries, who um, within within those countries there are richer individuals, but overall individuals are are in a situation where they are uh, where they're unable to um, uh, live lives where they're where they're able to to progress their lives, support support members of their family, um, and and develop themselves as as individuals, which are, which is obviously a, a a critical part of of uh, what any individual wants to wants to achieve. That that analogy writ, writ large, um, and especially around this idea of of debt, um, and and I think that 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 is perhaps an important uh, important thing for us to to sort of um, examine and look at. In the UK here, we we look at individuals who perhaps are struggling because they have huge amounts of debt, um, and individuals can get into a lot of a lot of trouble. Poor individuals because perhaps if they can't afford to buy food or to be able to buy clothing, they may go and find um, uh, a loan company. And those loan companies for poorer individuals are going to be charging them extortionate rates of interest, which then puts them into a debt spiral. And that debt spiral means that they have to borrow more to cover the debt, which puts them further into debt. And the debt keeps growing and growing, and that individual becomes poorer and poorer and poorer. Um, And... Uh, is is it is it a fair analogy uh, for uh, low and middle income countries as well that they have found themselves in a position where they've had to borrow in order to support the development of their countries, um, and a, and, a, and a lot of factors have played into the into the fact that that money as it's gone in has perhaps ultimately also been siphoned off to to richer countries through the intervention of of companies that are. Um, that are working in those countries, and one can think of lots of examples of that, also as a result of uh, poor governance and corruption as well, but that ultimately that, that money does not yield the economic benefits that it, that it could do, um, and that the country then has to go on to borrow m- more money in order to cover those debts and to further support the development of that country, creating a debt spiral fueled by interest as well. And interest is perhaps at the core of part of the issue here. Um, and then we get a situation such as we've seen in Sri Lanka or Ghana and perhaps impending in Pakistan where a country essentially becomes bankrupt. They cannot afford to continue to pay off the interest payments and repayments on their loans and and therefore their creditors say, well, you, you can't pay us um, and... Uh, uh, and and the country goes well. We're, then we're bankrupt. We can't, we simply cannot have, afford to pay, and and uh, creditors will say, well, then you're not getting any more money, and uh, uh, and the country grinds to a standstill, as we as we saw in Sri Lanka. Indeed, um, I think that um, let's first um, uh, uh, you know uh, distinguish between a couple of things. One is that. There is an internal forced governance problem in these countries, which have led to the situation that mm. they have had to sign almost 16 to 20 IMF programs over the last 20, 30 years. Mm. And of course, one of the things is that 
Pakistan recognizes and, you know, economists like Akhazmiya and others have uh, consistently pointed out that we have a serious uh, structural problem in our economy where um, large parts of the economy are, remain untaxed. Uh, so, for instance, in Pakistan, only 1% of the Pakistani people pay tax, um, which is, uh, you know, uh, about, um, uh, you know, about 30 million people out of a population of, of more than 200 million people who pay taxes. Mm. And these people also pay tax because uh, it is cut at the source, because I think if they had the possibility, they would probably not even themselves pay the tax. Mm. So, obviously, Pakistan has been consistently told by IMF, and this is where I completely agree with IMF, that Pakistan needs to really broaden their tax base. It needs to tax their landed uh, aristocracy. It needs to land, you know, tax its industrialists. And uh, it's likely that if Pakistan was able to tax these people, um, and then it might be able to actually easily manage some of its um, uh, debts. Uh, but, the, but also, let's look at the other uh, you know, thread, which is that, um, you know, uh, Alex, uh, uh, let me just give you the author's name, Alex Gladstein, you know, the one mm-hmm. who has been just writing on some of these uh, resource flows, mentions that um, in 1980s, when the World Bank funding was expanding rapidly, that for every tax dollar contributed, 82 cents were immediately returned to American business in the form of purchase orders. Yep. Um, I think we may have uh, lost Dr. Aleem uh, there, so we will try and get Dr. Aleem uh, back on the line to continue this um, fascinating discussion. Um, so, in the meantime, we're going to take a short break. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. The unity of God is a light which illumines the heart only after the negation of all deities whether they belong to the inner world or the outer world. It permeates every particle of man's being. How can this be acquired without the aid of God and his messenger? The duty of man is only to bring death upon his ego and turn his back to devilish pride. He should not boast of his having been reared in the cradle of knowledge, but should consider himself as if he were merely an ignorant person and occupy himself in supplications then the light of unity will descend upon him from God and will bestow new life upon him. Thank you for staying tuned to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. And uh, hopefully we have Dr. Aleem uh, back on the line now um, in a really fascinating uh, discussion about um, the ongoing challenges uh, for countries um, where they have... um, uh, found themselves in a situation of um, incredible amounts of debt, uh, res- resulting in uh, the uh, resulting in a financial situation where uh, those countries are unable to maintain that debt and, and therefore unable to ba- pay for the for uh, basic things which sustain a nation uh, and and further health uh, as a wealth inequality within within the country as well. And uh, Dr. Alim, you hopefully we've got you back on the line. Can you hear me? Yes, so um, I will just give, give you some figures which are really alarming, as you were mentioning. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the resource flow actually permanently reversed uh, in the beginning of 1980s. So in, in 1982, 
the flow of resources from sort of north to the south actually completely reversed. And between 1970 and 2007, um, uh, the total debt service paid by poor countries, the rich ones, was about $7.5 trillion. Mm. Um, and when all the flows were, uh, flows were added from 1960 to 2017, uh, it emerges that $62 trillion was drained out of developing countries from the equivalent of 620 Marshall Plans that we talked about in Germany in today's dollars. Mm. For every $1 of aid that developing countries receive, Jason Hinkle writes, they, they lose $24 in net outflows. Um, and since 1970, the external public debt of developing countries that it has increased from $46 billion to $8.7 trillion. In the past 50 countries, uh, 50, 50 years, countries like India and Philippines and Congo now owe their former colonial masters 189 times the amount they owed in 1970, hmm. and they've already paid $4.2 trillion on interest payments. Hmm. Now, a, a very interesting uh, illustration of this would be Pakistan's own uh, debt repayment mm. and um, Ghana's repayment. You know, yeah. uh, in Ghana, 70 to 100% of their revenue actually goes into debt servicing. So whatever revenue actually country gets uh, essentially just goes into debt servicing. Mm. And this is not even the principal amount. This is just the interest that is owed on debt. In Pakistan also, uh, the uh, debt servicing actually accounts for almost 70% now of the total budget. Mm. So essentially, that doesn't leave anything for the country in terms of its public services. And that's why the numbers that are emerging actually are quite grim, that are around 5.6 million people die every year for lack of access to health care in poor countries. 5.6 million people die every year for lack of health access, which means that because these countries are now in such debt traps, that um, and are unable to generate revenue, which is their own fault partly, of course, but that means that millions are dying because of lack of access of healthcare. And of course, the same is true for education, where there's a silent emergency and nutrition emergency that is creeping on these countries. We know that 40% of the children in Pakistan are stunted and 28% are uh, under uh, underweight. So we know that there is a serious emerging crisis that is happening to young generations in these countries, the price of which will be paid by these nations over the productivity of the individual's life, which means that these individuals will be not less productive, in fact, will be a burden on the country's economy, which is already sort of hemorrhaging resources to the developed, uh, to the developed world. And thank you for that, Dr. Aleem. Some really sh shocking and disturbing figures in all of that. The things that, that stand out for me personally are um, the what you mentioned um, in terms of for every dollar that is given, in inverted commas, to developing countries, $24 is taken away in terms of debt repayment, which is absolutely astonishing and just speaks to the, to, uh, I mean, we could only really describe it as, as, a, as a lie of the idea that, that developing nations are, are uh, gift, gifted money or perhaps are supported by richer nations when clearly they, they are not. Um, and also the, the the figures around the number of individuals who who die in developing countries as a result of poor access to healthcare, which is something that I'm very keenly aware of, having worked in in um, countries um, in the developing world uh, alongside alongside clinicians and colleagues there who very sadly find themselves in a position where they are unable to do their own jobs and save the lives of individuals because of a lack of resources. This is 
and this is very real. The impact of individuals is is real. This is not theoretical. This is not just about uh, numbers on a piece of paper. This is not about the um, uh, the uh, a balance sheet. This is about <clears throat> individuals who are una- unable to afford enough to to eat, and as you say, which means children grow up with with stunted growth. They're unable to achieve their own potential they're unable to get an education they're unable to become productive members of society and and all of these things go to um continuing the the oppression ultimately of of um individuals and and of nations and one one thinks back to the era of um empire um the british empire through the east india company had a system of of economic oppression through the exploitation of the cotton industry throughout the um, 17th, uh, 18th, and 19th century. And that same system of exploitation seems to be very apparent now because, as you say, whatever whatever is generated in terms of resource by individual countries goes to pay debt repayments. And so ultimately you have a situation where the so-called investors are getting huge yields on the money that they invest, um, and the and the countries that are debtors are seeing no end in sight to their debt, and there are some individuals who have who have made the the case very strongly that all um, international debt of this nature should be cancelled, um, and that the balance sheet should be should be reset, and that there is no conceivable way in which um, individual countries could could be uh, in uh, uh, developing countries could be seen to be in any way in debt since they've repaid their debt many times over exactly uh, you gave example of the british colonial empire now here here is a very interesting example of what is happening to the francophone countries that were colonized by france mm. um, france has been holding the national reserves of 14 african countries since 1961 mm. and i'm not going to know the na- name of these countries but the monetary policy governing such diverse aggregation of countries is because, in fact, operated by the French Treasury without reference to the central fiscal authorities of any of the uh, African countries. Under the terms mm. of agreement, which set up these banks and the CFA, the Central Bank of each African country, is obliged to keep at least 65% of its foreign exchange reserves in operations account held at the French Treasury, as well as another 20% to cover their financial liabilities. So each year, actually, France still holds these countries responsible for paying them what would be called colonial tax for the benefits of slavery and colonization. So, mm. you know, the, the dynamics haven't really reserved, uh, reversed in one sense. Um, as we talked last time, many of these colonial powers, when they, when they were withdrawing, put in place uh, structures that uh, created what we call uh, extractive economic systems. And in extraction, essentially, uh, the economy of a country becomes uh, a place where uh, the developed colonial power, withdrawing colonial power, would actually put in uh, taxes and mechanisms whereby this country would have to remain subjugated to the, the colonial power, which is what we call neocolonialism, in fact, because many of these countries withdrew physically, but the financial systems that were put in place made these countries totally dependent and, uh, you know, obliged to still pay uh, to their former colonial masters the mm. kinds of resources that we still see getting out of the African countries to even France. So uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that if you were to look at some of the other examples, some of these countries, some of the countries that have made 
good progress actually in Southeast Asia that we call the emerging Asian tigers at one point in time. You know, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, um, Malaysia, um, Thailand. You know, Thailand was never colonized. Um, and uh, Singapore emerged and Malaysia emerged because of uh, very, very strong political leadership that uh, held together for 30 to 40 years. Uh, we also, also know that for a country to really walk out of poverty and have sustainable um, human productivity, it needs to have at least a 20 to 30 year cycle of uh, 3 to 4 percent, 3 to 5 percent of their GDP in education sector. Mm. Um, now, obviously, because of the burden of debt servicing, it is almost next to impossible for many of the developing countries, including Pakistan and Ghana to actually put even 1% or 2% of their GDP in education sector, which essentially leaves no resources for human capital development, which is a critical factor that played a role in the rise of the Asian economic tigers, tigers like uh, like uh, Singapore and, and Malaysia and, mm. and Hong Kong. So I think that, uh, I think uh, recipes for development are known. Uh, in many instances, we also say that uh, the local culture of governance in many of these countries is responsible for the kind of lack of resources and the dependence on international financial institutions and still being in a debt trap uh, is uh, you know, responsible, and we must assign the blame uh, proportionately. But I do believe that the current international financial economic system is really um, uh, has, take, has to take a huge amount of responsibility. And the policies implemented through the international financial institutions and bilateral donors and multilateral donors, including China, are not really helping these countries to be able to put in place the policies that will allow them to work out of the debt trap. Eventually, it's going to all fall apart. And this is the real biggest fear that uh, you know was articulated in the World Economic Forum, which, is, which happened a couple of weeks back. And the report that came out from Oxfam, which is talking about this rising, what you call polycrisis, uh, in one sense, the fact that they, everything is in crisis, including economics, mm. fiscal, monetary, um, you know, global health system crisis, um, logistical crisis. So we are looking at uh, many uh, polycrises coming together and forming a big, one big uh, problem that nobody seems to actually have a solution for. And uh, and there are reports that come out which always will spell out three or four things to do, which is still, you know, paints a hopeful picture. And certainly if there was leadership available and if there was a consensus among the leadership who are at the helm of the affairs in the, in the global governance and many developing country, developed countries, then it is possible to do that. You know, there's no reason why people in Africa should die of lack of food when in Europe people have to... Uh, you know, throw tons of food away in, mm. in waste. Uh, so it is not essentially, it's, not, it's, it's essentially about maldistribution and lack of uh, foresight among the global developers and planners, which is giving rise to this kind of a situation. And unfortunately, there seems to be nothing on the horizon that is telling us uh, that they have learned lessons from uh, this growing inequality. Instead of that, actually, there is there seems to be a headlong rush into increasing conflict in the interest of the global military-industrial complex, where we see emerging and, and sort of rising, um, you know, potential for uh, conflagration of conflict in, in Ukraine, 
Uh, things are heating up in Southeast uh, mm. South China Sea between the Philippines, J- Japan, and the and the Chinese forces. So there is a lot of there are lots of flashpoints that are emerging that uh, we uh, are also giving rights to what we what I call would be a very very serious uh, situation if not addressed very quickly. Thank you for that, Dr. Lehman. And you spoke of um, solutions and you spoke of leadership. And, and of course, we've spoken many times on this program about um, His Holiness, Hazrat Mizam Masrur Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth uh, caliph, Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And he's spoken on many, many occasions at uh, national uh, peace symposiums here in the UK about the need for justice uh, and the need for vested, vested interests to to not um, uh, corrupt the needs of uh, individuals and individual nations. Um, I think it would be really good at this point to have a listen to a clip from the National Peace Symposium from 2018 in which His Holiness talked about this very uh, subject uh, framed uh, in the context of um, the, the global need for a response to climate change. So let's listen to that now. In today's world, we often see the major powers and international institutions make schemes or plans that are aimed at bettering the lives of people around the world. In recent times, one of the issues that many politicians and intellectuals have debated and complained about is climate change and specifically a reduction in carbon emissions. Certainly, striving to protect the environment and to look after our planet is an extremely precious and noble cause. Yet, at the same time, the developed world, and especially the world's leaders, should also realize that there are other issues that must be tackled with the same urgency. People living in the world's poorest nations do not concern themselves with the environment or the latest figures on carbon emissions. Rather, they wake up each day wondering if they will be able to feed their children. Their economic plight is truly desperate and their poverty levels are far beyond our comprehension. For example, there are numerous countries where the majority of citizens do not have access to clean drinking water and are forced to survive by using dirty pond water to to fulfill their basic needs. Even that too is not easily available. Rather, Women and children have to travel each day for miles on end to collect water for their families, which they carry home in big vessels balanced on their heads. We must not consider such hardship as other people's problems. Instead, we must realize that the result of such poverty has severe implications for the wider world and directly affect global peace and security. The the fact that children have no option 
but to spend their days collecting water for their families means that they are unable to go to school or to attain any form of education. They are stuck in a vicious cycle of illiteracy and poverty that is seemingly endless and hugely damaging to society. Today, their poverty and hardship is compounded by modern technology, through which even people living in war-torn or deprived parts of the world are able to see the comfort with which people in developed countries are living and the opportunities that exist for them. Witnessing the great disparity in their circumstances compared to others is cultivating further agitation amongst the local people and these frustrations are being preyed upon by extremists who entice the impoverished with financial reward and by promising a better life for their families. <clears throat> Similarly, the targeting of illiterate youth means that the extremists have free reign to radicalize and brainwash them. The extremists take advantage of the fact that the rulers of those countries have more often than not failed their people. Most <clears throat> regrettably, the ruling classes in war-torn or deprived nations are more concerned about preserving their own status and power than helping alleviate the suffering of their people. The result is that those who have nothing come to view their own corrupt leaders with contempt and see the world's major powers as the enemy. Tragically, we are seeing the horrific effects of this in Muslim countries as well. And it is after observing the desperate state of their countries of origin that some Muslims brought up in the developed world have been radicalized and have perpetrated horrendous terrorist attacks here in the West. <clears throat> Hence, I firmly believe that if we truly wish to protect our world and to ensure we have we, we leave behind a legacy of uh, opportunity for those who follow us. It is essential that every effort is made to raise the standards of the developing world. Poor nations must not be looked down upon. Rather, we should consider them as part of our family, our brothers and sisters. By helping the developing nations stand on their own feet and by giving their people opportunities and hope we will actually be helping ourselves and safeguarding the future of the world. 
Otherwise, we are already seeing that the poverty and destitution in the developing world is negatively affecting the rest of the world as well. And that was Hazrat Mizar Masroor Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, speaking at the 2018 National Peace Symposium here in the UK. And really striking words, uh, Dr. Aleem, from His Holiness, in terms of the in terms of the solution that's that is required um, to to uh, to make a change, to really uh, make a change in respect of um, uh, in respect of the um, the the world economic situation and the and the support that is required for for developing countries and for individuals within those countries um and and i guess we've we've got about nine or ten minutes left to to the uh coming up to the news at the end of this first hour and it'd be good to to really get get into detail about what those solutions might be in terms of the things that really need to change, and His Holiness has, has spoken on many occasions about the need for justice and then and the need for individuals and individual countries to um, to to frame this about uh, in terms of uh, it shouldn't make any difference whether whether we're talking about uh, ourselves as a nation or another nation or individuals within that nation. Um, we should be treating everyone with with this with the same degree of compassion and justice. And no matter no matter what the case, um, and that if that were to happen, then we can really start to make a difference and progress progress humanity forward towards a more a more peaceful situation. And uh, just before that clip, you you spoke about the fact that the conflict continues in the world, and and that conflict is often triggered as a result of inequality. Indeed, um, the the spoke uh, very very clearly about the issue of justice. And mm-hmm. I, I believe uh, if you want to elaborate a bit on that, um, you know, there have been recent reports and a uh, huge amount of work going on in European development and uh, debt, you know, institutions about what to do. And one of the biggest uh, things and themes that have emerged recently and the United Nations has endorsed it is global tax justice, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks about... Um, what can you do to uh, alleviate the kind of uh, problems that are emerging because of debt? And uh, it is very interesting to see that that just one-off windfall tax from the property of the billionaires in the world would release amount of um, you know several trillion dollars that could lift many countries out of poverty. Um, the fact that uh, money doesn't exist was given alive and. Uh, money was mobilized for COVID, um, for COVID, and overnight, I think over a few matter of few months, about 17 trillion dollars mobilized for COVID. And of course, we know now that there is a lot of issues. Uh, there is a lot of money that was made out of this by even again the global uh, corporations and global mm. pharmaceutical industry. So essentially, um, some of the uh, things are very well known. There needs to be a global tax justice. Uh, which means that global corporations which actually um, make money in poor countries by, uh, you know, by employing cheap labor and then extract that money back to their own countries and also in places where they are not taxed uh, should be completely done away with. Um, As we talked about at the country level, uh, you know, there should be tax justice in the sense of money classes, the aristocracy, the landlords, the large industrialists in many developing countries who are able to get away mm. with not paying taxes must be taxed. 
um, taxation should be progressive, uh, that it should be uh, imposed on people with larger incomes rather than extracted from people with measures like uh, general sales tax, which, uh, which uh, punishes more the poor people. Um, so essentially, there is a huge amount of work that can be done on what Hori has talked about in terms of justice in working on tax justice globally and at national level. The second aspect of this is, is climate justice, which is also a very, very powerful emerging theme in terms of green economy, in terms of um, what you call negative growth or no growth uh, paradigm, where many economists are arguing that this consistent, long uh, uh, demand for uh, economic growth is unrealistic, that it is not possible for countries to grow unlimited amounts of uh, have unlimited amount of economic growth over over uh, decades, that there is likely that there's a new balance that can be achieved by not insisting so much on just GDP growth, but also on human capital development and uh, and paying attention to what really uh, means uh, meaningful life to people rather than just materialistic uh, happiness by buying goods, um, you know, getting more connections. And, and also imposing some sort of tax uh, and, and uh, climate tax on countries that uh, contribute to a large amount of emissions. We know that um, large parts of developed countries, including the U.S., uh, owned um, their emissions, uh, you know, are on the largest part of the carbon emissions in the world. Yet the climate policies uh, are being imposed on developing countries like Pakistan and India to reduce their emissions when they actually contribute very, very small amount of even perhaps less than 1% of the global carbon emission. Carbon emission. So climate justice is another part, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Um, and then this can be elaborated in terms of, you know, how um, things that can be done which would help us to alleviate uh, the current crisis. And I believe that uh, many institutions are now engaged in that. Uh, one of the things that keeps uh, being propounded is that there needs to be a clear understanding of how uh, power structures need to change in, in societies. So rules need to change in societies to shift power in economy and society. Uh, laws have to be uh, changed where uh, workers can unionize and, you know, uh, uh, make their uh, views known. Many electoral democracies have a problem with uh, youth populations um, uh, you know, increasing over 65%. So Pakistan, for instance, has a youth population that is about 65% of the total population. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that percentage actually is below 18 years of age, which is unable to vote. So a country actually is being governed by a number of 40% uh, people uh, ruling over a 60% majority, which has no say in how um, uh, economic policies are being designed. So obviously there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, governance reformation that can be done in some of the developing countries. But I think uh, also this applies to developed countries like the UK. Now, you, you know that because of the policies that have been pursued in the UK, uh, national health services are in crisis, and uh, you know you are a part of that. So I believe that uh, there needs to be also a very serious rethink in most of the developed world where uh, there are pockets of uh, crisis emerging that need to be addressed uh, uh, and, you know, we need to stop thinking about the current development model. It mm -hmm. has to be um, discarded in, in the favor of 
completely a new paradigm that needs to emerge. And I think it's it's really fascinating the things that you're you're pointing towards there, Dr. Aleem. And ultimately, it needs a reframing of how money is 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 spent and 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 how it's generated for that for that requirement, um, and and that it should be aimed towards supporting the poorest in society and the poorest nations in the in the world in a way in which it, it isn't doing now. Um, I know that, th- that this is a very big topic, um, but but and we only have a couple of m- minutes now to just round this off. But one thing I think is fascinating, which is the idea that you mentioned at the beginning, um, that whether or not there is money available, is there a magic money tree? Um, nation states are able to, to um, through, through their uh, national banks, are able to create money if that is required, with the potential side effects of, of inflation, which is something that we've seen now on the back of everything that happened during COVID, um, which can be controlled through taxation. But in order for that to be equitable, it needs to be fair taxation. It needs to be taxation that, that is not the burden of which is not put upon the poorest in society. I think we may have lost uh, Dr. Lee, which is which is a real shame, a really fascinating discussion. But we are coming up to the end of the first hour of the program, and um, and we will have Dr. Lee back on on the program um, in in due course. Um, and if you uh, want to listen again to this discussion, then you can listen to it or you listen to any of our previous discussions by going to SoundCloud and searching for Voice of Islam and from um, from there looking for Weekend World. And you're listening to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam and we're live now and we're coming up to 11 o'clock on today, the 22nd of January 2023, coming up to the news. Um, and then after the news, we'll, we'll continue a discussion with Mahmoud um, our correspondent in America. And um, uh, if you want to take part in any of the discussion here, you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, or you can call through on 0208-687-7878. Uh, thank you for staying tuned to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. My name is Ahmad Khan, the time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 22nd of January 2023. And you're listening live to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. And um, uh, here on Weekend World, we go behind the week's news. In the first hour of the program, we were extremely lucky to be joined by Dr. Aleem, um, who uh, was uh, talking with us about um, the fact that Developing nations find themselves in a situation of mounting debt and debt crisis as a result of the mechanisms which have been put in place on the face of it to support these nations to be able to develop further and to and to uh, be able to fund development in their countries. But unfortunately, these loans and the nature of these loans means that they find themselves further and further in debt. Um, and uh, And Ultimately, it leads to the movement of resources and money away from developing countries into into more developed countries rather than the other way around, and, and a system of injustice and, and financial uh, and economic inequality. Um, and so, uh, this this situation uh, ultimately needs needs to be needs to be changed if we are to bring about a fairer world. So, 
Um, uh, in the next few minutes, we will be joined by Mahmoud Emma to talk about the, the US news. Uh, and we're going to take a very short break. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. Take note how the holy prophet of Islam remained resolute and steadfast in his claim to prophethood from beginning to end in the face of thousands of dangers and a multitude of enemies and threatening opponents. For years on end, he endures such hardship and suffering as increased from day to day, enough to make one despair of success. It is inconceivable for a man with worldly motives to have shown such prolonged endurance and steadfastness. Not only that, by putting forth his claim to prophethood, he even lost the support he had previously enjoyed. The price he had to pay for his one claim was to confront a hundred thousand contentions and invite a multitude of calamities to befall upon his head. He was exiled from his homeland, pursued with intent to murder. His home and belongings were destroyed. Several attempts on his life were made by poisoning. Those who were his well-wishers began to harbour ill for him. Friends turned into foes. For an age which seemed eternity, he braved such hardships, which are beyond a pretender and imposter to suffer through. You're listening to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. Uh, thank you for staying tuned. And uh, we're very lucky now to have uh, Mahmoud Ahmed on the line from the United States. And uh, American correspondent Mahmoud Ahmed, Assalamualaikum. Thank you for joining us on Weekend World. Good morning. It's been a while, Mahmoud. Uh, thank you for thank you for joining us today. And I recognise how early in the morning it is for you for you there. Um, but lots to lots to talk about. We've got a bit of catching up to do on things that have been happening over there. Um, I think that um, we we find ourselves in a funny part of the American um, uh, political cycle where uh, it's still a way off. But um, the uh, elections are, are looming. The, the presidential elections appear to be looming, and lots of discussions and lots of um, uh, uh, chatter at the moment about um, whether or not Trump will will be on the uh, on the ballot as the um, Republican candidate for for uh, president. What will Biden do? Does he does he have the the strength in him to be able to take on a second term? Uh, Etc. And and Mahmoud, your 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 thoughts on this? I mean, do you, do you think which direction do you think this is all going to fall fall in, or will we end up with two completely fresh and new candidates for the presidency? Yeah, this certainly has been the uh, parlor game in American politics. Um, frankly, from the moment that um, Trump lost the election and and Biden um, took the oath of office. People have been wondering, on the one hand, does Trump, you know, um, mount a successful comeback? For a while, there was some uncertainty around whether he would run again or instead perhaps be a kingmaker. Mm. Um, he seems to have resolved that, at least for the moment, in favor of running um, for the office. Uh, though uh, in recent months, it's become clear that he is going to be far from unopposed in that respect. Um, and then, of course, the other question is, you know, does Biden limit himself to one term or does he run for a second term? I, I think he's always 
indicated that he would run for a second term without fully confirming it. Um, lately, he seems like he's he's going to uh, uh, really put his you know hat in the ring once more. Um, I think Democrats will defer to him in that regard. Uh, it really comes down to whether he you know feels that he has enough you know left uh, uh, to to really do it again. Uh, you know, as, as a reminder, he is he is relatively advanced in his age, uh, but it, it, it seems that he, if he can summon the energy and he feels he has enough popularity, would probably like to you know go for a full eight years. Uh, and I guess when when you look at the the age of American presidents, they 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 do tend to be quite old, um, but they they is it is it fair to say that they've been getting older with time or is that just something that waxes and, and, and wanes and 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 obviously not not to be ageist but there is that question of whether there is capacity within within uh biden or trump for that matter to be able to really do justice to the job because it's not just a popularity contest there is real work that needs to be done i mean what 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 are your thoughts on that and does that and how much is that really framing the debate because um i mean you 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 listen to to uh, president biden talking perhaps at press conferences or on other occasions and there are occasions where he seems to be lost in thought a little bit and and a little slow to respond and whether that's just him and that's always been him and <laughs> it's not a reflection of the fact that he is um getting older or whether that is a real issue and, and uh, there is a, a potential uh, problem there when it comes to crisis situations where you need rapid responses? Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a good question and one that I think is important to grapple with. You know, uh, one, one of the concerns, obviously, in talking about this is that people are concerned about giving you know, air to, um, let's say, conspiracy theories about you know, Biden really not being fit for office and really, you know, someone is pulling the strings behind him. That kind of discussion seems quite fanciful and, and removed from reality, to be candid. But if you put that aside for a moment and just talk about, as you said, uh, the, the reality that, that he and, and Trump, for that matter, are both in their, you know, uh, uh, you know I, I believe Biden may, may have turned 80 already or very close to turning 80 uh, you know, that, that, that is a reality, right? And, and most of us know that at that age, people are not doing their, their best work, uh, you know, uh, um, you know with, with the demands of an office like the presidency. Um, now, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily know if there's a huge concern that he would not be able to step in in a moment of crisis. You know, part, part, partly I think there's also the, the reflection of the fact that there are other people around him who are, you know, really, you know, far younger and, 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 and running the offices of the state. On the other hand, uh, you know, is it really the best that a nation of 300 plus million who is arguably the world's leading nation can do mm. to have an octogenarian, you know, for its ultimate leader? And that's a serious question. And, and so I do think that, you know, he, 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 he privately will also, uh, you know, mold, mold that over uh, uh, you know, and and uh, and we as a nation, and, and and frankly, the world as a whole, should be thinking about uh, you know leadership and 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 what 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 kind of signal uh, you know we should be sending 
uh, about you know who who should be in these positions of uh, you know kind of really strenuous uh, uh, you know leadership and 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 it comes down to how you view that older generation uh, you know and, and and being respectful of them while also thinking about how to pass the mantle at the right time. Thank you for that, uh, Mahmoud. And, and you know, it is, I'm sure, a debate that will that will continue in 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 that respect. And I mean, you 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 spoke of Trump being the the kingmaker, and it's interesting to see how perhaps American politics has has continued to evolve, devolve. I'm not sure what the word is. Um, and there, and certainly in terms of the Republican Party, it appears to be split now amongst those who who are supportive of Trump and the sort of politics that he has brought about or furthered, and people who are very much are opposed to that, um, and and don't regard the 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 legacy of the Republican Party as being as being that sort of politics or uh, uh, whether in in respect of. Um, uh, false news and and um, and the and the use of uh, propaganda in order to further uh, political aims, or or the sort of extreme right wing politics and and the politics of of um, uh, 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 trying to put wedges between between individuals, whether it's on the basis of race or class, etc. Um, but but it's interesting to see. Uh, news around a new Republican congressman, George Santos, who you might argue is very much in the mold of Donald Trump in respect of the fact that he has uh, openly admitted that he he lied, or in his words, embellished his resume. Um, and, um, it, and it's really fascinating, really quite disturbing to see that someone uh, went for public office, um, so described his own journey, um, and the successes that he'd had, and and many of those uh, appear to be uh, based on uh, untruths. Um, and and do you, I, I mean comment on on George Santos? I guess first of all, in terms of of uh, the fact that he is where he is, and and will it mean that he can continue in the in in the work? I mean, he appears to have got himself onto various committees already. Um, and what it means for American politics in general. It. it Truly is astonishing. I have to say, I, I think it, it's it's um, rare for uh, such a clear-cut uh, story to come forward uh, of, of dishonesty, lack of integrity, uh, you know, outright lies being told by uh, somebody who is now confirming, uh, you know, that that many of the things that uh, you know were discovered to be false about him are in fact false, and that he did embellish his resume. And then nonetheless, he has no intention of resigning from office. And I think, you know, there's there a famous, you know, saying attributed to, to, to Donald Trump that he said that he could, um, you know, uh, uh, God forbid, shoot someone on Fifth Avenue in New York, and yet there would be no consequence for him and his base would not abandon him. Um, and, and I think that mm. there is a lot of truth to that, unfortunately. And I think George Santos is a living embodiment uh, you know, there, there, there was a, a story just the other day now about how he potentially defrauded um, a, a person who was in distress because, you know, their their dog was, was sick and ready to raise funds for, for, for their, their illness. And, you know, he, he, he uh, volunteered to host a GoFundMe campaign for that person, raised money, and then refused to pay it to the person who needed it. And the dog died. And, 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 and so 
you get ever closer to, to the Trump scenario, uh, and, and yet it appears that, you know, there is no consequence. And I think, you know, part, part of it comes down to, um, you know, he is affiliated with the Trump base. Trump remains extremely powerful within that part of the party, the Republican Party, uh, uh, that has historically looked up to him. Uh, and Santos has wrapped himself in that mantle. And unfortunately, that remains the majority of the party. The other factor here, cynically, unfortunately, is that the Republican Party you know, did not do as well as it had thought that it would do in the midterm elections and enjoys only a very narrow majority in the House of Representatives um, and did not win the Senate at all. And George Santos, uh, you know, for better or worse, uh, is now part of that narrow majority. Um, and as you know, we have not discussed, but, but certainly people have seen, uh, uh, you know, with their own eyes, uh, you know, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, had to endure a bruising battle of 15 ballots in order to get himself elected speaker, even notwithstanding that his party had a majority in that in that body, uh, because his election was being held uh, sort of hostage, so to speak, by a, a small minority of members within his party who nonetheless could deny him the speakership by uniting against him. And Santos was an essential part of the coalition that got him over the line eventually. And so he seemed reluctant to let Santos loose because that would trigger an election and it could narrow his already narrow majority even more. And I, and I guess <clears throat> this is where it really comes down to what is what is the Republican Party willing to do to ensure that it continues to have um, a voice in American politics and is able to continue to shape the narrative in American politics and and the the question of of compromise, as it were, and and what compromises is, is acceptable um, uh, in respects of uh, of that politics. And so it's a. I mean, I guess we will be watching, continuing to watch this with with fascination uh, um, uh, in terms of of what evolves uh, in the future for American politics. And I, but I guess uh, you could make the case that despite the fact that uh, Trump is no longer uh, president, his legacy continues in in no small degree in terms of the effect that he has had on American politics and, and continues to have. Um, we'll mo- move the conversation on a little bit, uh, Mahmoud, and, um, and we've got about we've got about 10 minutes. And um, the the whole world is in a, an, an economic crisis at the moment. I don't think there's any doubting that in the first hour of the program, we were talking about the the effects, the ongoing effects on on developing nations, but as far as the United States is concerned, there's absolutely no question that that post COVID, the economic impact has been has been huge, leading to an increase in in inflation, an increase in interest rates. We've seen that everywhere in the world, but also in the in the United States, and it's had a had a real and direct effect on on individuals. And <clears throat> we can see that um, something called the debt ceiling has become a problem. If we can touch on that. But also, um, Biden seems to have a plan, and that plan is the Green Revolution. Um, but it's been criticised by uh, quarters in, especially in the in the EU in Europe, as being a protectionist move and something uh, which is uh, designed in order to to support uh, American industry at the at the expense of industries around around the world, and and essentially is is anti market. Um, in in every respect. So, I mean, if we if we can touch on the debt ceiling question first of all, 
Mahmoud, um, what is the debt ceiling and why is everyone getting so excited about it? The debt ceiling is an artifact of American politics that as a measure to uh, control spending by the federal government, there is a requirement that the United States um, you know, must always have the authority from the Congress, from the legislature, to uh, borrow more money as needed. And there's a ceiling imposed upon that borrowing such that when that ceiling is reached, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter that the U.S. owes, for example, you know, borrowers, uh, uh, you know, interest or payments on its debt or may need to borrow more money in order to stay afloat. Uh, you know, it is legally prohibited from, from, from further borrowing unless that is authorized by the legislature. And mm-hmm. so it provides, you know, the legislature with essentially a, 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 a you know, a huge, a huge leverage point. Uh, to, to withhold that approval, uh, and if that happens, which has come very close many times, but has never happened, because the deal has always been made, always always been found to, to continue, uh, then the United States could potentially be in its default on its obligations to, 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 its, to its creditors, uh, you know, which would be completely unprecedented. I think it is uh, probably the, you know, one of the very, very, very few countries in modern times uh, that that has always been been sort of good, you know, for, for its word on on on, on repaying it, it gets on a timely basis. Hmm. And uh, uh, so I guess it's not a question of running out of money, but just not being able to not being able to spend it. And uh, in the first hour of the program, we were talking about the fact that countries like Sri Lanka and Ghana have um, unfortunately defaulted on on debt repayments uh, to their creditors. And and you're saying that the United States could find itself in the in the same position unless. Uh, and unless that political barrier is 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 removed, but as you said, it's been removed on every other occasion. So it 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 feels like a looming crisis that one, but one that never never really materializes. Um, but I guess this you know it comes it comes to the question. Yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I was going to say you're right. It never has materialized, but 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 it requires a level of political cooperation across the aisle, right, to, to ensure that that doesn't happen. And going back to our discussion a moment ago, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that there was an, a small number of holdouts, about 20 or so, you know, who, who, who were, uh, you know, preventing Speaker McCarthy from becoming Speaker uh, and, and, and forced him to endure, you know, 15 ballots, uh, you know, in which he lost the first 14. And that same group of people, uh, uh, you know, plus others within the Republican caucus have made it clear that they do not view themselves as being, uh, uh, you know, ma- malleable and, mm-hmm. and, and willing to make uh, a, a deal, but, but, but instead really plan to this time, you know, bring things to a head. Uh, uh, you know, now most people would look at this and say, uh, you know that that's an act of self-destruction for the for the, for the country, and mm-hmm. surely you know reason will prevail and cooler heads will 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 prevail. But but time you know will, will tell. Yeah, and and I guess huge political capital in in this and and in the negotiations around it. Um, the other the other yeah. thing we've and we've just we've just got a few minutes now. Um, the other thing is the three hundred sixty nine billion dollar package. It's a huge amount of money. That Professor, uh, that Professor, uh, President Biden has put forward for the Inflation Reduction Act. 
that includes subsidies aimed at, uh, at bringing companies in to invest in technologies that will help to cut the country's greenhouse gas emissions. And on the face of it, a noble aim, cut greenhouse gas emissions, save the world from climate change. And how do you do it? Well, you incentivize um, companies you say, well, we'll we'll subsidise you, you, and the and the government will subsidise you uh, to come and do this and to come up with technologies, whether that is hydrogen power, electric vehicles, um, cheap, clean energy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all of these things um, in order to uh, push the next uh, industrial revolution on the back of of a green revolution, um, but. But criticism that the the nature of those subsidies means that they are geared towards supporting American companies, which is a, a form of blatant protectionism. Um, what what are your what are your thoughts on that? I mean, a, a necessary evil or or uh, just a, a, a political gambit? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so interesting. Um, I, I I think when Donald Trump was elected to office. Um, it was a reflection, of course, of a moment in time of his personal brand. But I think part of it, and, and I think Mr. Biden, one of the reasons he ultimately was able to defeat him, um, is, is to see what led to the rise of Trump, what mm. types of political forces were in the making. And I think one of those was an increasing skepticism among the electorate and, and, and frankly, to some extent, even among experts about the power of free trade to uh, uh, rise, kind of ra- raise all ties and, and in particular be good for the United States from a, from a domestic politics standpoint, you know, without some type of offsetting, uh, you know, you know, measures to protect, uh, you know, American industry, the American worker, right? Mm-hmm. You have this period of time, probably NAFTA, you know, in 1994 being the high water mark. Uh, you know, where people thought that, you know, entering into free trade agreements really, uh, you know, on, on its own would more or less result in, you know, widespread economic prosperity and be good for the United States in the long term. Mm-hmm. And I think over the ensuing decades, yeah. you had a lot of pain, right, from, from people who were losing their jobs and so forth. And yeah. so one of the enduring features of, you know, that have lasted beyond the Trump presidency is a reluctance to, you know, embrace that rhetoric of free mm. trade. And so I'm not surprised that yeah. these types of measures were implemented because they have widespread support mm-hmm. within the U.S. political spectrum. Uh, and not equally unsurprised that, of course, you know, people who view themselves as our allies in Europe, you know, would bristle at them and, yeah. and see themselves as having the disadvantage. So this will be a very interesting thing to watch. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mahmoud. I'm afraid we've come up to the end of, of our live segment of our program. And thank you very much for your participation. And thank you to everyone for listening. Peace be upon you. I was recently invited to speak at St. John's College in Cambridge on the question of whether there is a need for God and religion in the 21st century. I want to share with you what I said. My immediate response to this question was that if God exists and has revealed religion, then there is a need for religion because religion in that case would be the path to him. It would be the only avenue to fulfillment, the only route to contentment. For if God, as commonly understood, exists, then such a being would never have made the universe without a purpose. 
when you and I avoid doing even minor things without a reason, it is irrational to believe that the designer, creator, and sustainer of all existence would have created this universe without a reason either. The Holy Quran alludes to this in chapter 21, when it says, We created not the heavens and the earth, and all that is between the two in sport. Had we wished to find a pastime, we would surely have found it in that which is with us, if at all we would have been inclined that way. Rather, the Holy Quran tells us that the entire purpose of the universe was to create humanity and whatever other humanities are out there, so that we may know God, love him, and worship him. This worship is more than just devotional, but is in reality a powerful two-way connection that causes the worshipper to reflect the qualities of God, like the moon reflects the sun. It tells us that it is in the remembrance of God that hearts find true contentment. If God exists, and if he has revealed religion, and if there is a life after death, then the need for religion is as strong in the 21st century AD as it was in the 21st century BC. Such questions and such answers are timeless and cannot be confined by time and place. Whether these claims are true, however, is a different question. I suspected that the question specified the 21st century because of where humanity is now. Unlike any previous era, we now live in an age that is characterized religiously by the lack of religion, by the widespread adoption of atheism, either implicitly or explicitly. Indeed, while there remain billions of believers in God worldwide, the most developed nations and decision-makers of the world have adopted atheism as their modus operandi, with both science and popular culture being explicitly anti-religious. Religion is seen as an outdated belief system based upon myths and legends, a worldview that explained phenomena for the primitive mind, but which surely we have gotten past. While modern society will tolerate and often support the exercise of religious culture, real religious devotion and fervor is looked down upon with some suspicion. The suspicion is either that of a weak mind from an ethnic culture, unable to yet fully grasp the import of modern science, or perhaps a lost soul, seeking some temporary solace after emotional upheaval. Religion is rarely seen as genuinely, potentially true. The reasons for this are at least twofold. First, the rise of science in the modern West has displaced religion as an explanatory worldview. The religion it displaced was, of course, Christianity, and the findings of science were seen to contradict the Bible's descriptions of a seven-day creation week, a universal flood, geocentricity, strict special creationism, and belief in a crucifixion event over which many have doubts. Of course, Christians have different views on these issues, but the historical impact of literalistic interpretations is undeniable. Over the course of centuries, the intelligentsia of the West lost their belief in Christianity, and this accelerated in the mind of non-scientists thereafter. The rise of the state as an organizing force in society displaced many of the functions that churches had had historically in organizing communities. The modern Western mind therefore finds itself most often in a kind of default atheism, perhaps with a nominal Christian background. There are of course exceptions, but this is the generality and the trend. And apart from Christianity, what other options do people have? In terms of numbers and influence, the other major competing religion is Islam. 
But from Islam, they see Muslim-majority nations enmeshed either in the most egregious materialism or in the oppression of their own minorities, or mutual warfare, or dictatorships and corruption. They see too often extremism, which even spills out into their own streets. If other religions such as Buddhism are turned to, these are often used not to truly change one's life, but as interesting philosophies from which one can gain valuable life advice, something which does not accord with the intentions of the original founders of these great revolutionary traditions. Thus, the Western mind finds itself facing a bind. Turn to Christianity and face the difficulties with science once more, turn to Islam and confront potential extremist teachings, or simply continue in default atheism. Unsurprisingly, the last option is taken up. Though the thirst and hunger for something more, some guidance, some fulfillment remains palpable. Thus it is that popular figures who represent some trace of religiosity or spirituality become the centre of an adoring fan base. We see this with the modern adulation of Jordan Peterson, Russell Brand, Ben Shapiro, etc. A response to and a rejection of the militant atheism of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, now seen by the popular culture as a distasteful and regrettable flirtation. I suggest that the reprieve of the Western mind is coming, that one can be spiritual and scientific, be rational and religious. Naturally, I believe that my own faith, that of the Ahmadiyya interpretation of Islam, represents this synthesis. I do not seek to convince you of this in this brief time, but I do want to show you how both modern science cries out for God to explain it, and how modern culture cries out for religion to guide it. 150 years ago, the scientific consensus was clear. The universe was eternal. It had always existed. It was mechanical, with the laws of nature being followed like clockwork. Strict determinism ruled the day, and Darwinism could probably explain all biodiversity. In other words, there was no need for God to begin the universe, and he was rather redundant within it. This view was to undergo many revolutions. The most significant among them was that of the Big Bang Revolution. Einstein's general relativity equations implied that the universe was expanding like a balloon. The Belgian Catholic priest, Georges Lemaitre, wound back the clock and realised that there had to be a beginning, a primeval atom. This in time became the Big Bang Theory, which implies a beginning to the universe, a first moment, prior to which it did not exist. Meanwhile, the strict determinism of yesteryear came crashing down with quantum mechanics. Whereas free will really was impossible in a deterministic universe, the flexibility of quantum mechanics gives a scientific basis to say that the universe's destiny is not laid out in all its fine details. As the decades rolled on, we discovered that the universe is finely tuned. If its initial conditions, if the laws of nature themselves or the constants by which they operate were even slightly changed, the universe would not function as it does. If gravity was made more or less powerful, the universe would either expand too quickly or collapse in on itself. If different forces were changed, you would not have the development of the heavier elements, the periodic table, the formation of solar systems and planets, and you would not have the chemistry you need to get biology. 
Life cannot emerge from hydrogen and helium alone. It seems therefore that the universe is specially set up to create a universe that would be able to produce life. It's a house of cards, and with one wrong move at the fundamental level, the whole thing would come crashing down. Many physicists have tried to solve this with a multiverse, which just pushes the problem up one further level. Who designed the multiverse to produce a universe like ours? What all this indicates is the presence of a mind who designed the universe. A mind that values life. A living, conscious, and intelligent mind. Starting to sound a little like God, right? But let's turn to within the universe, where we trace our lineages down to some primordial set of cells. While Darwin imagined that life could emerge quite easily in some warm little pond, it turns out that the emergence of a cell with DNA and RNA code remains an incredible mystery. The DNA code is essentially like a language. The words have to be spelt in a specific way for it to make sense, for it to produce amino acids that fold into proteins. And there needs to be a simultaneous translational machinery for the whole thing to function. So many factors would have to come about together that the co-discoverer of the DNA code, Francis Crick, thought it had to have come about in outer space rather than on Earth. But again, this just displaces the problem to elsewhere. Meanwhile, we see in the evolutionary history of life massive increases in the information present in the DNA code at sporadic junctions. Natural selection cannot help here because selective processes select what already exists. If the DNA underlying the massive jumps in evolution need huge amounts of extra information, then Darwinism is not sufficient. But an intelligent author of the universe is. It is upon surveying this evidence that Fred Hoyle, the great Cambridge astrophysicist, was shocked, converting him from his default atheism into a belief in God. He said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics, as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The trajectory of modern science showing that a god is needed to explain the universe, I think is clear. And while some of these interpretations are certainly contested, they are often contested with an inquisitorial fervour that reminds one of the high priests of religion seeking out the heretics. And this is in fact the case, because science is the scripture of modern atheism. And if new chapters are discovered that contradict the edicts of the high priests, then the whole edifice will fall. The cognitive dissonance will be too much to bear. Now this is the testimony of science. But can religions that are thousands of years old ever tell us something meaningful about science? I suggest that they can. The Holy Quran directly, specifically, addresses natural phenomena in ways that are extremely surprising. You remember that the Big Bang was proposed after the expansion of the universe was understood. Well, the Quran says in chapter 51, and we have built the heaven with our own hands, and indeed we go on expanding it. This is not a mistranslation. It is the plain meaning of the words. It says in chapter 21, Do not the disbelievers see that the heavens and the earth were a closed up mass, and then we opened them out, and we made every living thing from water. The word used for a closed up mass is ratak, 
or Ratkan, which indicates something seamless, homogeneous and dark, rather beautiful description of the singularity. The Quran does not stop there, but tells us that there are many other planets like Earth out there in chapter 65, and that their inhabitants are sentient and receive revelation from God. It tells us that God has spread terrestrial creatures throughout the universe, and that we will one day come in contact with them. It does not stop at cosmological issues either, but discusses issues of geology, biology, and many other fields. It even covers embryology, the development of the human within the womb. The beginning of chapter 23 gives medical details that were completely different to those of Aristotle and Galen, giving a correct description of fertilization, implantation, the development of organs, and the musculoskeletal system. I won't be giving you a detailed analysis of this right now, but I don't ask you to take my word for it. Instead, I ask you to consider the word of Keith L. Moore, one of the most decorated anatomists of the 20th century, who literally wrote the textbook of embryology that I used at medical school. He wrote, Muhammad could not have known these facts about human development in the 7th century, because most of them were not discovered until the 20th century. Muslims and others are justified in concluding that these facts could only have been revealed to Muhammad by the one who knows all about us, not only about how we developed, but about how we live and function. It is for all the above reasons that I propose that not only does modern science indicate the need for a God, but that these findings support the claims of the Quran. The Quran is not a scripture that is opposed to scientific discovery. In fact, it is ahead of science, predicting the discovery of things that were completely unknown in 7th century Arabia. It even discusses the successive forms that man underwent in a guided evolution, prompting John William Draper, the famous historian, to write in his 1874 book that evolution is a Mohammedan or a Muslim theory. Thus we see that one of the major stumbling blocks of the Western mind, that of science contradicting religion, is not an issue for Islam. Now, if what I have claimed is true, and the Quran really does speak of these phenomena, then this is powerful evidence that God exists. And if God exists, then religion is needed for us to fulfill our purpose. But let us now look at the opposite perspective, the idea that we are doing just fine without revealed religion. In reality, each one of us has a religion. As the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him, pointed out. He said, what is religion? It is the path one adopts for oneself. In reality, everyone has a religion or creed. An irreligious person who does not believe God exists still has to choose a path to follow, which in essence is their religion. However, one should stop to think whether the path they have chosen in life truly gives them everlasting happiness, peace and tranquility. He thus pointed out that a religion can be understood as our path in life, that in which we hope for salvation, for absolution, for progress and contentment. While religious people choose the religions they believe to be from God, non-religious people choose their own religions. They may devote themselves to their career, to making money, to looking beautiful, to their family, or to some other cause. But are these non-religious paths working for them? Has the non-religious era as a whole been one of peace and contentment? 
I think it is plain that it is not. The last century has been the most atheistic on record, and it has also seen the greatest devastation ever known to man through World War I and World War II. World War III is now at our doorstep. The root cause of all such wars is greed and arrogance, seeking to take what is others for themselves, seeking security in total domination rather than employing trust and goodwill. Such an attitude is anathema to true religion. True religion teaches you to believe in God, to recognize him as our common creator, to see each other as the equal creation of God. We all have rights, yes, but we also have responsibilities to each other. Just as we are naturally sympathetic to our own brothers and sisters, so religion teaches us to love others, wherever they are from. This is a far cry from the atheistic framework, that we all exist in a Darwinian struggle for survival, that might is right, and that winner takes all. Now there is no doubt that nominally religious people, both now and in history, have usurped the rights of others, but they do so in contradiction to their religious teachings. Atheism, meanwhile, is a vacuum. Morality is voluntary and can be dismissed as needed. This was seen most clearly in the USSR, the most atheistic state in history, which crushed freedoms and humans alike in the name of science and progress. One could not point to any text it violated because there is no text of atheism. Then let us look at economics. We stand again on the precipice of massive financial disaster. Even when capitalism was working well, it based itself on slave labour, the extermination of indigenous peoples, and the ongoing exploitation of the global south. Islam condemns all such actions. It also condemns the proliferation of interest. It is now forgotten, but it took hundreds of years of lobbying from bankers and their allies in the West to allow interest 500 years ago. It was forbidden in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Dante had a special ring of hell for those who charged interest, because it represents the lenders exacting a profit from the needy. It therefore inherently creates inequalities, leading to a gradual reduction in spending power and periodic collapses that we call recessions. The fiat money system depends upon this foundation. It is just one branch of the tree of interest. But the Quran condemns interest, saying that the system that arises from it is one driven by insanity. Instead, it advocates a marginal wealth tax in zakat, money which goes to the poor in society, something gaining favour in some political circles these days. It gives extensive guidance on how to create a fair monetary system and how to have fair markets. If man-made laws and systems are failing us, should we not look to those of God? When we look at the more local level, the need for religion becomes even more apparent. Religion gives us moral guidelines. It gives you a code of conduct, guidance on how to live your life. Modern culture has adopted the religion of unlimited freedom. Any instinct, no matter how base, must be acted upon immediately. Drinking and taking drugs are normalized, with the massive amount of social trauma they cause hidden away in police stations and psychiatry wards. Meanwhile, we have demonized traditional marriages that allow a physical relationship to take place only after marriage. 
that prioritise creating a safe and stable home for children, with both parents sacrificing for the family good. Instead, we have championed an individualistic dating culture that leads to shallow physical relationships, widespread infidelity, and poor long-term prospects. The immense heartbreak and personal upheaval this causes is widely experienced, but little discussed. Without guidelines, what are we supposed to do? Freedom from God is slavery to the world, to whatever social trends we happen to be born into. We adopt them unquestioningly, while looking down upon the religious with their rules and regulations. And yet, we stop at every traffic light, knowing that without them, there would be chaos. The traffic lights of religion, meanwhile, are ignored. Why? Because we are free, free to hurt, free to wander in pain without guidance and without purpose. Indeed, it is this lack of purpose that is perhaps the most pernicious result of atheism. You see, at the heart of atheism, there is a gnawing question. What is the point? What is the point of life? Why do we endure all this suffering if we are here merely as the accidental byproduct of an accidental universe? How do we make sense of this world? Why get up every morning just to die one day in our beds? But we prefer to bury these questions, distracting ourselves with routine and activity, just toys to play with while the clock ticks down. We are then surprised when the hopelessness that atheism breeds manifests in depression and anxiety, and we treat it with medication, as if that can nullify the effects of our entire culture. But the question is valid. What is the point? Under atheism, there is no point. Now, the good news is that we know this is false. We look around and we see a world clearly filled with purpose. We see, among the bad, so much good in each other. We know there has to be a reason for it all. It can't all be an accident. There must be an answer to this question. What are purposes? There must be guidance, real guidance, on how to deal with suffering in life, how to live, how to be. I suggest we need to take another look at religion. Religion is the only answer to these questions because it is the only world's view that tells us that there really is a higher purpose for us, that guidance exists. For me, Islam represents a rational religion, an opportunity to be both spiritual and scientific. It gives Muslims like me guidance on everything, from the highest levels of international law to the most subtle nuances of human morality. I believe too that the Western mind must reject atheism must reject this religion of unlimited freedom that chains you to a million worldly burdens, and instead look towards the path laid out for us by God. For if salvation exists, it is only in this that we will find it. Thank you. This is the third part in the serialization of the book Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. 
We now proceed to study the status of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, of Islam, and according to the Holy Quran, the most conspicuous and incontrovertible claim regarding the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, is made in the widely known and extensively discussed verse of the Holy Quran. Muhammad, peace be upon him, is not the father of any of your men, but he is the Messenger of Allah and Khatam al-Nabiyyin, the seal of the Prophets, and Allah has full knowledge of all things. The Arabic word Khatam in this verse has many connotations, but the essence of the title Khatam al-Nabiyyin is, without a shadow of doubt, to be the very best, the supreme, the last word, the final authority, the one who encompasses all and testifies to the truth of others. Another verse which speaks of the excellence of the holy founder of Islam, peace be upon him, declares that the teachings of the holy prophet, peace be upon him, are perfect and final. The verse runs as follows. This day have I perfected your religion for you, and completed my favour upon you, and have chosen for you Islam as a religion. The obvious inference from this claim would be that of all law-bringing prophets of the world, and in giving the world the most perfect teaching, he occupies the highest station amongst the prophets. Developing the theme further, the Holy Founder, peace be upon him, is assured in no uncertain terms that the book being revealed to him will be guarded and protected from interpolations. As such, not only is the teaching claimed to be perfect, but also it is declared to be everlasting, to be kept pure and unadulterated in the very words in which they were revealed to the Holy Founder of Islam, peace be upon him. The history of the last 14 centuries has borne ample witness to the truth of this claim. The following are some relevant verses. Surely we ourselves have sent down this exhortation and we will most surely be its guardian. Surely this is a glorious Quran in a well-guarded tablet. In view of the above, the Holy Founder of Islam, peace be upon him, is clearly not only declared to be supreme, but also the last and final law-bearing prophet whose authority would continue to remain good till the end of time. Having said that, one begins to wonder if, in the eyes of some, this claim about the supremacy of the holy founder of Islam, peace be upon him, would be tantamount to creating ill will or misunderstanding amongst the followers of other religions. So how can one reconcile this claim with the theme of this address, namely that Islam guarantees peace in all spheres of human interest, religion being not the least important among them. It was with this question in mind that I had to elaborate this claim at some length. This question can be answered to the satisfaction of an unprejudiced and inquiring mind in more than one way. As has already been mentioned before, Similar claims are also made by followers of many other religions. It is only prudent 
for one to investigate the relative merits of the claim without being unduly excited about it. By itself, such a claim should not offend the sensibilities of the followers of other religions who make similar counterclaims. But Islam goes one step further by teaching humility and decency to its followers, so that their belief in the supremacy of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, is not expressed incautiously, thereby giving offence to others. The following two traditions of the Holy Founder of Islam, peace be upon him, stand aloft as beacons to illuminate the case in point. One of the companions of the Holy Founder of Islam became involved in a rather heated discussion with a staunch follower of the Prophet Jonah, of the fish. Both parties in the debate claimed their respective Prophet to be head and shoulders above the other in excellence. It appears that the Muslim contender might have rubbed in the claim in a manner so as to hurt the sensibility of the follower of Jonah who approached Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and lodged a complaint against the Muslim involved in this debate. Addressing the community in general, the Prophet issued the following words of instruction. Do not declare me to be superior over Jonah, son of Mata. Some Muslim commentators of tradition are perplexed by this tradition, as it seemingly stands counter to the Quranic claim that Muhammad, peace be upon him, is superior not only to Jonah, but all prophets. But they seem to miss the point that what he said was not that he was inferior to Jonah, nor superior to Jonah, but simply that his followers should not declare him to be superior in a manner liable to hurt the feelings of others. In the context of what had passed, the only inference one can draw is that the Prophet, peace be upon him, was teaching Muslims a lesson in decency. He was instructing them not to become involved in bragging. They should take care to avoid discussing his status in a manner that would cause offence. Such an attitude would indeed be detrimental to the cause of Islam, because instead of winning hearts and minds to the message of Islam, quite the opposite would be achieved. This attitude of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is corroborated further by another tradition in which a Muslim was involved in a similar argument with a Jew. Both claimed and counterclaimed the relative superiority of their spiritual leaders. Again, it was the non-Muslim contender who thought it fit to lodge a complaint against the behaviour of his Muslim adversary. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, responded with his habitual humility and prudence, and taught the Muslim the same lesson in decency and courtesy by admonishing do not declare my superiority over Moses. The long and short of this is that it is for God to decide and declare the comparative ranking of the various prophets' closeness to him. It is quite likely that in a particular age, in the context of a particular religion, God may have expressed his pleasure with the prophet of the time in such strong terms as to declare that he was the best. Superlatives can, after all, be also used in relative terms in the context of a limited application of time and space. This could easily have led 
the followers of that holy personage to believe that he was the best and holiest for all ages and for all times to come. To genuinely believe in this should not be considered an offence against others. A civilised attitude would require that such issues should not be abused to create friction amongst religions. That exactly is the true import of the admonition of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, quoted above. If adherence to this principle of humility and decency is adopted by all religions, the world of religious controversy would be the better for it.